Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Zafarova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, let me share a cool gift with you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, and of course, everyone listening to Strategy Skills Podcast wants to strengthen strategy skills, we created for you a one-pager which shows the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. You will want to see it. And you can get it. It is a free download for a limited time. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And Firms Consulting is F-I-R-M-S, consulting.com, forward slash, overall approach. And our guest today is Rick Walker. Rick is an experienced founder and leader across a variety of domains, business, philanthropy, global politics. He scaled his first company to 400 employees when he was just 26 years old. And simultaneously, somehow, he managed to also be a chairman and scaled international nonprofit from 800 to 2,100 team members in the process, helping his hometown of Houston attract over 5 billion in job creation investments. And Rick is also the founder of Strateg Capital, which is a private equity firm. And he wakes up at 3.30 in the morning every day to fit it all in. Rick, welcome. So great to have you with us. Chris, it is a joy to be with you. I'm a big fan of your podcast and I appreciate the invitation. And uh, such a pleasure to have you with us too. Rick, so let's start from how you built your first company to 400 employees in your 20s. Not every person can say that. Well, I think a lot of it was actually just, just sheer ignorance. I really didn't know what I was doing. And so we just started adding clients and adding headcount. And it was really exciting time. Uh, just a little bit of, a little bit of background. We grew up down in South Texas, close to the Mexican border. We grew up in a two-bedroom house. And so we really didn't know anyone that had a business that size growing up. And so I started the business when I was in college uh, in Oklahoma City. Now, if you know anything about the geography, Oklahoma City down to Corpus Christi, Texas is a nine-hour drive. And so I drove that nine hours to Corpus Christi generally on Thursday evenings. I would check on clients on Fridays. I would train staff on Saturdays that I would drive back up to college on Sundays. And I did that for about 18 months. So 18 hours of driving for 18 months every single week. It was it was very challenging. So we, we, we got the business launched like that initially and, and up to about 400 employees. I was still running my own payroll. I was doing all the sales. I was I had some supervisors there, but it wasn't a very structured organization. And uh, I remember that I remember the day when I was uh, 26 and I, we were counting the W-2s, we're sitting out the W-2s and we we're counting them and because we had to go buy stamps for them. And I was counting them and I was like, well, this is 400 and there's still like a whole lot more to go. And how many W-2s are we sending out? And I started realizing, well, maybe I need a little more structure around this. And around that time, I, I didn't even have an office. I was working out of a Starbucks on my laptop or, you know, coffee shops back then. And so it was it was really kind of a neat time. And just through a series of interactions, I, I was able to meet the right people in, in airports and different boards, things like that. And I was just able to, to be giving the gift of, of, of really valued relationships that I desperately need to help me scale the organization and get it to a profitable place. And so that was that was really an exciting time. And what I, what I found since then that if you do things right, your life can be a whole lot easier with 50 employees than 400 employees. And you can also make a lot more money as well if, you, if, you, if you're able to outsource strategically. And so that's really where we, we went after that 400 employee headcount. And um, it just been, it's just been an exciting ride and we're having, we're having a blast. Rick, so take us a little bit more into the details. What kind of business it was? How did you started it? And why you didn't start it where you were living? Because of course, 18 hours driving back and forth, it's a big commitment and it takes time from working hours that you could have been using building your business. 
Yes, yes, great question. So I was in the summer, I was down in my house in Corpus Christi from on a break from college. I think it was after maybe my freshman year. And I, w- I had gotten a job doing telemarketing because I knew that I needed to learn the thing that I'd least wanted to do, how to do that the best. And so the worst thing, I, the, my worst nightmare was to cold call people. And so I got a job tel- telemarketing that summer. And I was really good at it the previous summer. And so I, I got a job doing that. I sat down for the very first day on the phone. I think I, if I made any calls, it maybe two or three calls that day. And I just decided, I kind of felt this, this voice inside of me. I'm not going to say it was God, but it was some sort of voice inside of me that said, Rick, you don't need this. And this is not the place for you to be. So I took my headphones off. I stood up. And the next day we started our business. I just happened to be sitting in Corpus Christi uh, that summer. And so I immediately started going door to door. And what I was selling was a, a firm fixed price to manage real estate. So commercial buildings, schools and churches and office buildings, things like that. And so the, the pitch was that I, you would pay me a, a firm fixed fri- price every month. And I would pay for anything out of pocket repairs for like toilets and lighting and cleaning. And if an HVAC unit went out, I would cover that. I'd repair it. And just you didn't have to worry about the risk of something breaking. And so sort of a warranty type of type of product back then. And it was quite popular. And so I think that first summer we picked up a handful of uh, customers, hired first two or three staff. Uh, then I went away to college. And so I had to manage this thing remotely uh, for the 18 months. I ended up moving back to Corpus. Uh, after college and was able to uh, build some additional relationships there and expand to other markets. And that was that was a, a very fruitful time as well. But the business really took on a life of its own as we started to, to scale up and add different layers of management. And it actually became a little bit unwieldy. And as it as it grew, it was the growth itself was fun. But I found myself in the place where I felt that the more headcount uh, helped me build my own little kingdom and it began to become more of a, an element of pride. And I'm, I'm very reflective, Chris. And, and I realized that whenever I begin to feel pride over something that I'm probably in the wrong place. And so that's when we started to be able to outsource pe- things. That's when I started, I stopped using the CEO title. Um, and I started using titles. Like I think my title right now on all my entities is, is servant. I, I don't want to have to have a title in order to attain leadership respect. Uh, I want to be able to gain the, the, the competency and the, and the access to people through my sheer, you know, my sheer oneness of who I am. And so I stopped using any sort of corporate title in that realm, unless, of course, I'm signing something. And I think that that's really when I started getting a clear perspective that I could do multiple things simultaneously, like the nonprofit work that you that you mentioned. Um, I think it's also important to to point out that there, there's certain qualities that it takes to be a good leader. I'm not saying that I'm a good leader. I'm, I make a lot of mistakes, but realizing those mistakes is, is definitely part of the leadership trajectory, the, the leadership journey, and be able to take tools and take practices that you find, for example, on your on your website, in your, in your videos about how to, to learn the consultative approach to working with people, how to use these various tools like the service profit chain and the, the value chain, the Porter's Five Forces, things like that. Those are all very important. But if we approach those from the wrong perspective, if, if our heart's wrong, that it's all about us, it's about us building our own kingdom, us seeing how many people we have, we've got to realize that that often puts us in the wrong place uh, internally, internally. And whenever we're not in the right place internally, we can very rarely effectuate the change that we should see in our organizations externally. And so that really took a, a big mindset shift uh, from my from my perspective. Um, I think I think also um, you're you're I was reading that you're from Russia. Is that that's right? Originally, long time ago, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was actually reading my favorite Russian author this morning, Dostoevsky. And and uh, the, the the great classic, the brothers Kar- Karamazov, and the 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 messianic figure in that book is Alyosha, and Alyosha had this great this great quote. He says something to the effect of that: whenever you have moments of doubt, like you're you're just not sure what you should do, that you you don't want to get overcome by that because the doubts turn into fears, and if your doubts turn into fears, then you very soon thereafter will 
begin to lose your mind so that the fear makes it impossible to even reason that that doubt leads to fear and fear leads to the inability to be able to reason through processes. And so I think there's a hint of truth in that somewhere. I think there's there's this hint, Chris, that that when we begin to fear, even these great tools that we have, the, the Porter tools and the Blue Ocean strategic tool set, all these tools that we have at our at our beck and call, that these somehow lose their efficacy because our heart is wrong, because we're fearing either failure or fearing not appearing important enough, we're fearing we're gonna lose our positions. And that all comes from doubt. So I think doubt's okay, but fear must be nipped in the bud because the fear is the gateway in Dostoevsky's world anyway, to the inability to use your mental faculties to reason and problem solve. This is brilliant. I love that you mentioned it. I really like how you think deeper about things than many people. So you mentioned something very interesting. You said, when I feel pride, something is wrong. And you probably mean pride in terms of some kind of sense of arrogance versus I'm proud of my child that they are such a kind person. So let's, let's unpack Absolutely. it because I think it can be life-changing for people who need to hear it right now. Yeah, yeah. So there's this, there's this great line in Lewis. He says something to the effect of nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours, which is, it's a paradox. It's a paradox that in order to keep something, you have to give it away. And I think that's what, that's what love is. That's what hope is that you can never really be a person full of love unless you first love others. Like it's gotta be, it's gotta be reciprocal in nature, but it's also a paradox. It's also a paradox. There's, there's other paradoxes that we work with that things like the meek will inherit the, the whole earth or unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it can never grow up to be a living tree. That, that death is the gateway to life. There's, there's, there are these paradoxes that are built in, and leadership is one of these things as well, the very great paradox of being humble to your coworkers, but also turning an eye of aggression to the outside world. And pride, pride is one of these, these interesting elements where I would, I would say that pride is something more akin to the bastardization of the outward looking assertion of your of your demands it with hopes that you would uplift yourself and so obviously as leaders of organizations our organizations have to come first and within that within that you have to make the determination whether profit seeking is first your customers are first or your employees are first or maybe your shareholders your other stakeholders are first you know it, that that's for your own strategic decision making but I think in any case where you as the leader of your group, of your company, of your organization are first and you become to make become making decisions where the pridefulness of those decisions are, are the preeminent fact of that, that's when we get into trouble. And so how do you get out of that? How do you get out of that? And you're, and you're right. You're right. I was one of my daughters had a had a cross country meet yesterday and I was cheering her on. I'm, I'm a prideful dad. I'm proud of my girls. I'll put. I'll put my, put my kids up against anyone else, like any good parent should. Like you should always promote your kids above, above every other kid because that, that's just the way the world works. That's what a good parent does. And so we, we find this place, this, this sort of paradox that we should be prideful of that which is right, things that we ought to be prideful of, but yet we should not be prideful of one ourselves. Um, and and it's, fun, it's funny that you find this in every single nature nation in the world that there's there's a hint of this that there's built in the moral law of, of the fabric of the universe things like across all humanity it's a universal fact that it is immoral to run away from battle if you're a soldier like courage is the expectation of the moral individual in every single culture no culture respects someone that runs away from a battle no one no one does that no one respects a traitor there's certain things within culture that, that that all cultures respect, and that's a timeless truth. But I think also this this, this element of pride is something where, where we have to figure out why we're doing what we're doing. It's not, it's not only necessary for us to determine whether what we're doing is the right thing, but the why behind what we're doing is the why the right thing. Is it the is it the right why? And even the proper actions with the wrong motive may work in the interim, 
But the in is only through our self-destruction because it reinforces the notion that improper motives with the proper physical activity are rewarding. And that's a dangerous place to live. That, that's how criminals are, are, are born is because they, they realize that criminal activity, if, not, if uncaught the first time, is rewarding. And so they keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And that's the same way that pride works. If, if pride works one time or two times, it's, it is a vicious feedback loop that teaches us that it's a good thing when it's, it's a very, very harmful thing. And so that's why I take the, the default notion that, that we, we as leaders have to put others above ourselves, that, that the hierarchy of the organization is really an inverted hierarchy where all the weight, all the load has to be sitting on the leader and it's very, very important that that we should take the role of the, the humble servant over that of the proudful, boastful leader. And if we think about it, fear and pride, they have some similarities because both of them cripple you as a leader in different ways. One of the reasons pride cripples people as well that we haven't yet touched on is it opens you up to being manipulated by others. Did you have any experiences like that? Any stories to share? Oh, yes, yes. A lot of that frequently comes as you as you send up the economic hierarchy that you 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 begin interacting with people that have that are that are higher than you in that economic hierarchy. And sometimes there's opportunities to co-invest in different opportunities together. And the check sizes just get insane very, very quickly. And so, you know, I have I have friends and people that we do business with that they will not do any transaction unless it's a, it's a minimum of 50 million per transaction. And I'm like, that's just that's just complete and utter sanity, because if you got to make, you know, 100 different investments, if you don't have your investments more than one percent in each investment, you're talking about a lot of money there. And these individuals, if they're if they're incorrectly motivated for power, and a lot of people got to where they are wealth-wise is because they were they were good at managing power, that that becomes a a tool that they use. They 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 ease you in with the little, hey, you put a million in, I'll put a million in, you put two million in, I'll put two million in. And slowly the the one in the two millions or the a thousand dollars and two thousand dollars becomes five million and ten million, and then and then it gets more and more expensive. And because a prideful thing to tell the other person that no, I can't, I can't do that this time. And it becomes a prideful thing for the other person as well to want to put one million in a project when they were comfortable putting ten million in a project two months ago. And so there's this. I think I think in, in here in Texas we call it a pissing contest to see who could who could piss the farthest in a in a you know in a restroom. That's 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 what we did in school. And I, I apologize about using that terminology, but. In Texas, that's what we use. It's 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 this contest for for who who who's the who's the biggest man, and that's just a losing game because you can never win that game. There's always a bigger man out there. There's always a bigger woman out there. There's always someone with a bigger pocketbook out there, and you can't play that. And if you try to play that, in the end, you get manipulated by someone who's better seasoned, smarter, better situated, has more knowledge about the investment or better knowledge about the business transaction than you. And they're always out there because they're specialists. And whenever you play a game where you've got to diversify into areas that are outside your expertise, you're going to get manipulated if you let pride wean itself in there. So you've got to be incredibly disciplined in that, Chris. And I think you're absolutely right. The manipulation is 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 there. Now, I think also the 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 maybe the maybe the lever that you use to get into pride, to get into fear is the pride that you fear the destruction of your very self and the valuation that people put on yourself from a perspective. So it might come across as different ways. Maybe, maybe you live in a house and if you're going to sell that house, you have to relocate in a specific part of town that you always have to buy something that's nicer because you don't, you don't, people think that you downsize, right? It, you always have something nicer. Or maybe your next car always has to be nicer than the last car. Maybe people expect you to have two or three or four or five cars. It just, it's a vicious loop. And if you let that give value to who you are, you've already lost. You've already lost. And so the act of the stoic may be the more preferred to put yourself in purposely uncomfortable situations 
situations where you could have something better, you could do something better, but you choose not to out of mere self-discipline. And I think we start, we begin to see here the nature of self-discipline and proactive engagement as the antithesis activities to the life of pride and fear. And we begin developing a, a self-awareness of what that might look like in our in ourselves. And so I, I would submit for your consideration, for your audience's consideration, that as we build core competencies, we build core values within organizations. Think about those two things. Think about the nature of self-discipline. What would it mean for an organization if they didn't have to be managed, that everything, everyone was self-disciplined, they came in built like that? And what would it mean for an organization if everyone believed in anticipating the problems of tomorrow today, and they had this air of proactive engagement about themselves, and you, you did that at the hiring level? Well, what that, what that would mean for your organization is you have a self-governing autonomous organization where everyone is aligned to do the right things for the organization, not all the time, but a lot of the time. And all of a sudden your, your drag, your, your, your coefficient of friction within the organization dramatically declines. And it also, by the way, solves the nature of fear and gives people license to make mistakes in their work. And of course, innovation only has one gateway and that's failure. And you've got to get through failure for innovation. You mentioned managing power. Some of your friends or, or people you know, they became wealthy because they're good at managing power. And I think that some of the people listening to us now would want us to dive into it. Yes, great. This is this is one of my favorite topics. I actually did a series of video lectures on uh, Machiavelli and the ascent to power and, and some of the work that Robert Greene's done with this. It's, it's really fascinating. I, I really think about, you know, one of my one of my other favorite Russian authors, Solzhenitsyn. Of course, he had the he had the epic uh, treaties, uh, the Gulag archipelago, talking about the, the atrocities that were committed uh, through the through the encampments there. And he said that unlimited power in the hands of limited people always leads to absolute cruelty. Unlimited power within the hands of limited people always leads to absolute cruelty. Well, that's that's fascinating for someone to say. And I think I think Solzhenitsyn is kind of like a like a, a Viktor Frankl type of figure. They they were both inside these internment camps. They saw evil from the inside and they came out, they escaped and they wrote about it. And they probably understand the nature of evil, the nature of, of humanity better than most of us do. And and Solzhenitsyn had this way about him where he saw that the, the power was not necessarily the problem. The problem is placing ultimate power within limited people or unlimited power within limited people. And that tells us where the bottleneck is. The bottleneck is within you and I. Like we're the, we're the problems. There's only a certain amount of power that we can hold, if any. Maybe, maybe, maybe the argument is that we should not have power at all. Now, let's go back to the sort of the 1300s to 1500s time period in Italy, specifically Florence, I was there a few months ago, just a beautiful area. I, I really believe that Florence may be the, the primary point of enlightenment over Rome and, and over the, the other sort of Greek territories and, and other places of Europe. That, that in Florence, you had this really interesting thing happening coming out of the business community. You had this, this, this family the um, uh, the de Medici's and the de Medici's were a banking family that that ruled probably 203 years in this Florent, Florentine city state. But they made so much money. They, they opened these branches up all over Europe that they they were able to effectuate statecraft and they were able to to hire armies and they were able to set up other kings and other other princedoms in other city states and be able to to effectuate control. In fact, it even got to the point that they were bribing popes and cardinals. So they were able to, to set up and, and have control over who was going to be the next pope. And at one point, the great Lorenzo de Medici had both his son and his nephew sent off to Rome so that the hopes that they would both eventually become you know, bishops and cardinals. And maybe they, one of them would be able to be pope someday to be able to protect the family. Because at that time, the popes had a standing army. Well, lo and behold, both of the Medici's son and nephew became popes. 
That's how much power this family had. And you think about the household there. They had at different times, they had um, they had Michelangelo and Donatello, and they had uh, all sorts of, of great artists through the house. This is the sort of influence these business people had, the sort of power to effectuate statecraft, to control the actual church and to control the business banking world. And as a, as a gift to this family, there's a young man by the name of Machiavelli, Niccolo Machiavelli, who presents a gift to, um, to Lorenzo de' Medici, a book, a little handbook based off of his observations of how statecraft and warfare and power works called The Prince. And I, I really highly high recommend folks check that out. So it's a quick, maybe one day read. And there's there's very, very powerful things in this book about how to how to take power, how to manage the power, how to handle the aggregation and the, the dispensation of power, and to be able to, to effectuate reigns over great swaths of land. And, and he sets up these great principles. Um, one of the one of the great principles is one that's being used by private equity even to this day. You'll hear some of the great private equity leaders talk about that if they take over a company, they're just assuming that the entire management team needs to go because a company that needs capital that bad in order to, to give, give away their control must not have been a very well run company. And so they just automatically come in and just wipe out the entire management team. Well, where do they get this? They get this from Machiavelli. Machiavelli says that whenever a prince takes over a new princedom, that he has to eliminate all the threats. That doesn't mean he comes in and he wipes out the army, not just that, but he has to come in and he has to not only kill the current king or the current prince, he has to wipe out the entire family line, the entire bloodline and all everyone that was that was accretive to their power. He has to eliminate all of them. Why? Why do they have to do that? Why was it strategically necessary for, for the, the maintenance of power to do that? Well, it's not only that you, you prevent future uprisings, but it's something even more important than that. It's that whenever you come to a treaty negotiation and you don't have a counterparty to negotiate with, you always do better. You always do better. Think about that. There's no one to negotiate against if they're all dead. Well, Machiavelli understood that. That's the way power works. That if you can, if you have to negotiate for your power, you're in a very, very weak position, right? You've got a chance of obtaining more power, but if you don't have to negotiate for the power, well, that's a, that is the most enviable of all possible situations. And so I think that's a little bit of the way power works. Power must be must be taken in balance. I've, I've, I have a number of other stories about, about power, but it's, it's one of those things that has, has to be balanced, that you have to take the, the, the crumbs of, of what works strategically, like the private equity world does with replacing the management teams, and also realize that you have people that have institutional knowledge about organizations that really need to be kept sometimes, or, or you're, you're just going to fall flat on your face. Um, another lesson about economics in Machiavelli is that he recommended that if you're going to go and take over a princedom, a, a kingdom, that it's always best for the prince himself to go and live there. That if you try to set up all these garrisons and these outposts all over, you're just going to spread your resources too thin. But a prince living there is, is something that, that shows that they're, that they're really buying from the people itself. And he makes this, he makes this great comment that some, something effective that it's better to be feared than to be loved. It's better to be feared than to be loved. And I think a lot of people learn their business skills from that. And, and obviously we're, we're sitting in, I'm sitting in the United States here and something that's based on the, the Judeo-ethic principle of, of, of you're supposed to take do for other people as you would want them to do for you, that you, you, don't, you don't mistreat people. And so all of a sudden we've got this, this paradox re-arises. It arises yet again that the proper way to take power is to use the traditional strategies that maybe a, a Machiavelli would, would, would suppose, but the way that we do it culturally is by giving power away and, and being submissive to the other party because you would hope that other people would do that if you were in the reverse roles. And so we, we, we find ourselves back around in this idea of life being a paradox. Like building on how to use power in an honorable way, a way where you serve people and make the world better through your efforts as a leader, how can we expand on that? Because 
I definitely don't want anyone to pick up some of the books about how to become powerful and use it in an evil way. What we really need to do as leaders is to move the world forward and not push it more backwards. There's enough of forces for that right now. So let's build on that. What advice would you give to leaders who want to use power in an honorable, serving way? Yeah, great. So I, I, I would I would use another line from Solzhenitsyn on this one. It says that the line between good and evil runs right through every human heart. The line of good and evil runs, passes literally right through the heart of every man and woman that we have to realize that each of us has the potential to do bad or to do good. And you're right. We, we, we may have skill sets. We may have tools that we can use that we can use either for betterment or for evil. Now, I think that also gets back to the, to this idea that there's something substantial about the nature of a person that the, the why is more important than the how that, that there's, there's objectively something in nature that that divides this idea of what good and evil is like remember remember the soldier that runs away from war every every side says that's a bad person an uncourageous person that that courage is is one of the virtues in fact it said that courage is the testing point of all the virtues it's the it's the crux of all the virtues and so i think that that courage is one of those things that we need to look at that we have to have the courage first to look inward about what kind of people we are what are we what are we giving our attention to? Heracles said that you become that to which you give your attention. I think Epictetus said something like, like that as well. You become that to which you give your attention. Now, what are you giving your attention to? Like, are you, are you, are you swiping all day? Are you thinking about money all day? Are you thinking about how to save your job all day? Like, like what are you giving your attention to? Are you giving your attention to, to your kids and to your nephews and your nieces and to your spouse? Are you giving your attention to, to nonprofits that could really, really use your skill set? Um, that's that's important. And if you show me your time, I will show you your destiny. Right? That's a that's a fact. If you show me how you use your time, I'll show you what your future is. And to go even more, if you show me your bank statement, I can show you what you really value. And so I think I think we have certain truths like this that that are really at our fingertips. But we fear to look inward to find out what really lies in our own hearts. The line of good and evil passes through our very hearts, in the words of Solzhenitsyn. Now, it also we have to also, also have to realize that a man like Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl, who we mentioned earlier, these are men that have saw have seen evil from the inside. They've seen evil, and so the ability to, be able to recognize what evil is, the the utmost of evil, has this this ability to, to, to realize what the actual scalability from the, the depths and the depravity of evil all the way up to the heights of goodness, that, that there's, there's goodness in, in the concentration camp. And I think this is what Frankl, Frankl found out when he was in the concentration camps in Germany, that he had this idea that if I can control my attitude, that's something that the guards can never take away from me. And so I'll focus on that. I, I've got, I've got some sort of control over this. And if I've got control over something, I have I have the ability to be able to to think about and to do what I want to do in this this very contained area of my life, then I can find meaning because I can attach that control up to something that that control is directed of. Rather my control is, is directed of my attitude or or it's pointing to even something higher, this this higher mythology of of what you believe to be true, that maybe the the utmost atm atmosphere of the of the universe, what you know, your God or your your whatever deity you worship. And so I think Frankel gets gets to the heart of this that that there is a real evil and there's a real good. And we've seen that in ev evidence in the, in the 19th and the 20th centuries through the Gulag Archipelago. And we've seen that happening obviously in Germany. And we have to realize that it comes from somewhere and it comes from within first and foremost. So so how do we how do we address this as we as we find ourselves taking on more power. I think that's really kind of the crux of the situation. The, the ability to, to realize that is you have to set your heart and set your mind on things that are higher and outside of yourself. That, that whenever you, you focus inward, you realize that you, you, you function sort of as a, as a, as a black hole, you're, you're sucked in on yourself. And, but if we're able to turn ourselves outward, we're able to 
get our priorities realigned. And all of a sudden, the power that we have is able to be used for good. The why changes too. The why changes too. There's this, there's this parable that Christ says that, that where your money is, where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. That your heart follows your treasure. Some of us, our time is our treasure. Our time is the most valuable thing that we have. Where you put your time, that's where your heart's going to be. There's no possible scenario where you spend all your time on social media and your heart's not, you know, sucked up in the in the grandeur and the the ostentatious lifestyles that you see on the social media. Social media is just a lie, is all it is. No one puts their really horrible stuff on, on social media. It's all just it's all just advertising. But this idea that that we have to look outward. Remember that we we started off the conversation saying that nothing that you've not given away will ever really be yours. Well, so will gifts like your time and your attention and your love and your respect and your hope. And so we have spent our time giving those sorts of things away. We'll find that whatever we give power, whenever we receive power, it just could be a natural outflow of that power just to give it right back away. Just to just to give it away, just to to let it be, I guess, fractalized back into the organization, back into our families. You know, why not why not give your kids a little bit of authority over a specific domain? Make the kids responsible for the kitchen. Make the kids responsible for the dogs. I mean, it's it's these little, little things that that we've got to just learn to give away. And the amazing thing is that reality teaches us that unless we give it away, it'll actually enslave us. It'll actually enslave us. That that power held on too tightly will end up enslaving us, not to the power itself but to the inward perspective on what's best for me. And whenever you're focused on yourself, you cannot, you can never see that, which is, that which is higher. I think there's a, there's another great statement out of Lewis that, that, you know, this may be Chesterton that says that, that of course the, the man who's always looking down on other people is, is looking down. It's, it's like, it's like a man that that's, that's in the Valley. He's just, he's just looking at the, at the ground in the Valley and of course, the man that's always looking down can never look up to see the grandeur of the mountains. It's it's something like that that you have to look to something that's higher than yourself. And other people are higher than yourself if you put yourself in the the nature of the the humble servant, the humble leader. And I think that's the right posture to have. That that true power, power that's not going to infect your soul, infect your mind, infect your heart. That won't that won't destroy you. True power can be a very very big gift. But in order to have true power, power that's for your ultimate benefit, your ultimate justice, your ultimate love, your ultimate legacy, that you've got to be able to give that away, give it away freely. Um, and the leader that gives power to the right people and in the right context never really gives it away. It's, it's being stewarded by the people within your organization and if there's that trust or that two-way trust that's built through the culture, well, that becomes something really, really spectacular. And you go back and look at look at the words of Drucker about how powerful that is, that it's more powerful than any strategy. Culture is strategy for breakfast. It's more powerful than anything you could ever imagine. And that's the way the greatest movements on earth in business and outside of business were had, is that power was fractalized. And when it's fractalized, whenever it's given away, it expands more than any one man or one woman can ever contain. And it's also outward bent. And whenever it's outward bent, it becomes something much more than we could ever dream or imagine. There was a line from a movie, Indecent Proposal, and it was something along the lines of, if you love something, let it go. If it's yours, it will come back. And if it will not come back, it was never yours to begin with. That's a great line. I love that. I love that. Coming back to fear, how do you deal with fear? So you, you, there's a few different ways to deal with fear. Um, and the, the risk, I, I, have a, I have a group of, of young folks that are, that are new to the investment business that I meet with once a month in my office. And we had this very conversation last month, that this idea of fear. There's, there's really two different ways you can overcome fear. And, and for a long time, I, I used this first method. What I, what I would do is I would overcome the fear of what other people could do for me, do to me um, by, by thinking of myself as a better person than that other person, right? So if that other person did something I didn't like, I would, in my, I would mentally think to myself, 
that person is just just isn't smart enough to know what they should be doing or i've i'm gonna i'm gonna outwit them in the end it would they were they were dismissive things that belittled the other party that i caught myself doing mentally and this is things that i did in my my younger years and, and even recently I, I find myself doing this as well and so that's that's probably the wrong approach to use pride to beat back fear of others now the the other way that we can we can address fear is is to realize that we have something greater than the 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 mere materiality of of the world to be had right the the lesser things that we have access to the the houses and the cars and the money and the and the businesses those are those are all you know quasi material things they're they're lesser things than the higher things love and faith and hope and beauty and courage those are all higher things on a, on a hierarchy hierarchical level of of transcendence that whenever i die my kids aren't going to remember how much money i had in my bank account they're going to remember the love and the faith i had to them they're going to remember the times that dad said i'm so proud of you i'm so proud of you they're going to remember those sorts of things and here comes here comes the point about fear is that the immaterial cannot be lost only the material can be lost and if you never fear losing the material the only way you can do that is if you don't value the material again we're, we're at one of these great paradoxes again that you become fearless to advance your material your business organization only by never fearing losing it that you can rebuild it again that you never need it that it's not really that important and it's 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 these paradoxes on paradoxes the way that that the mindset of the effective executive is built that we we have to come to this this place where we can never fear losing something that was that is material that if we can do that we're invincible it it was it was Epictetus that told us that that who then is invincible the one who could never lose anything outside his reason choice that person's invincible. The, no, the man that can never lose anything outside his own reason choice. Well, that's true. That's true. And so what do we, what are, what do we need to do as a result of that? Well, we need to value the immaterial. We need to value the immaterial. Now, I think a lot of the audience is probably standing back and say, hey, Rick, that sounds, that's kind of a stoic philosophy. I hear you sound like a, like a stoic philosopher there. Well, I think they had a lot of it right. I think they had a lot of it right that you know, in the Platonic world, that that everything that you see on Earth is is just a a reflection, a form of something that sits sits above above the material world. In you know, I think Plato used the word heaven, but it kind of sits there. That that anytime you see a, a four-legged thing that you can sit on, it's it's a chair. That whether it's a red chair, a blue chair, anything, we all we all have this idea of what a chair is, but also we have this idea of what a, what a good man is. A good man doesn't run away from battle. A good man tells the truth all the time. A good man. Is the man who who inspires people and doesn't degrade people. A good man is is someone who can be trusted, who's who's fair and honest. That's a good man. But we don't need the law to tell us that. We we have that we have in ourselves. We can we can self judge what a good man is or a good woman is. We know that it's right and and proper for a a, a man and woman to if they can to have to have children or to adopt children. We know that that's 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 the way that's the fulfillment of love itself and that a love between a man and a woman is never fully expressed unless it's shared with a third part person that a child a child or someone that needs the help maybe it's a maybe it's someone that's in a in a in a tragic situation that needs the help of the couple but the height and the reality and the very consummation of the love of a couple is never met unless it's shared with someone outside that couple otherwise the love between the couple is just a just a selfish love, like like a like a couple in college would have, where they want to spend all their time together and they and they they banish their friends. It's it's something like that. And so I find myself in a place where I have to keep looking higher. When I spend my time focused on the material world, how much money do I have? Do I have money to pay the bills? Safety. Safety is a really big thing. You fear not being in control. That's a really big thing. But whenever you can crush the fear of not being in control, you can crush the fear of being at risk everything opens up and so how so how do you get to that place um yeah for for me personally i'll just share for share for a second the way that i do that 
is I have a I have a very 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 strong faith, um, and I, I I read my Bible an hour a day. I'm not I'm not a good person. I'm not a good person, but it instills in me various truths truths that the that the country was built on. That there's there's something there's some higher authority that we have to answer to. That's where the kind of truth and justice and courage all come into play. That we're all we're all centered around. That we're all built with this this notion that love is the right thing to do. But I also believe that whenever I walk into a room, that that room is prepared for me in advance, that if I believe in a God that transcends and a God that is omnipresent, he's present at all times simultaneously, but he's also omnipotent, he's also all powerful, and he's my friend, that when I walk in a room, that God has already been in there, he's already powerful enough to be able to effectuate the changes that are needed in that room before I even enter the room, and that I have the most powerful force in all the universe, not only going before me, but also going behind me, going to my left and my right, above me, and also inside of me. And nothing can harm me. Not even death itself can harm me. The fear of death is the last thing to be conquered. Uh, go go back and read John Milton. Go back and read Dante, Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. You've got to be able to beat pride. If you can't beat pride, you can't beat sin. If you can't beat sin, you can never beat death. And you have to have a mechanism to do that. The man who does not fear death, that man is invincible. That man is invincible. That woman is invincible. And that's the ultimate place to get to. But as long as you fear death, you fear being harmed. You feel your pride being hit. Your your efficacy is really really limited. So we got to get beyond that. And when we don't value the material things, we become free. Very That's right. And it allows you to right. be a very effective leader. I would also say that, that from that, first break, so my view is very similar to yours. I also have this intention that I want to be a source for good. And everything I do, every time I have an interview, I have a coaching call with a client, I have a business meeting, anything. My intention is always, how can I be a source of for good in this situation? And also this view of life that everything is happening for you. So if something, some challenge comes your way, for example, you meet some person who is maybe a business partner, and then it turns out that they don't have very good values, then you see what is the lesson here? And it is very powerful. It makes you free and it makes you not desperate. And it allows you to see opportunities in situations where you otherwise would miss opportunities. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. And it, it's it's something where also we've got to be really patient, right? Like, like we can approach these situations with the, the best of intentions and just sometimes the situation just doesn't work out. And you know, our, we have our time spans. We have our time horizons just just incorrectly situated. Um, I think about uh, I, I, you know I'm, I'm listening to to your beautiful Russian accent, and of course you're listening to my Texas accent. It's not beautiful at all. And I I I, I think about all, all the great all the Russians. You know, we've already talked about Dostoevsky. We talked about uh, Solzhenitsyn, but I also think about the great the great musicians. I I think about Tchaikovsky. My my daughter's a, a ballerina. And Tchaikovsky first wrote his first uh, uh, ballet for, for Swan Lake. He wrote, he wrote the music for Swan Lake originally in 1877 for, for Moscow's uh, Volshi Ballet. And it was just a complete flop because the Moscow Ballet did not have the choreography skills to be able to put this thing together. It, it, ran, it ran for a couple of years, but it just got horrible, horrible reviews. And it just, it just, it just was a tragedy. This beautiful score by Tchaikovsky. They just couldn't come up with the choreography for it. It just it wasn't the right partnership. It wasn't the right timing. And a few years later, 1895, Peptipa and Ivanov's St. Petersburg production of Swan Lake, they did the choreography themselves. This is 18 years later. And my daughter's a ballerina. We, I took her to see Swan Lake a couple of months ago, and she just loved it. My, my daughter's a pre-professional ballerina. She's just to love it. I love ballet. I love ballet. And I love Tchaikovsky. But anyone that knows Tchaikovsky knows that he is the preeminent orchestrator of the late 1800s worldwide, that it was so complex what he was writing. It was just, it was just unfathomable. I think, of, I think of the other Russian, Rachmaninoff, the piano concerto, number two. It's just spectacular. It's, it's beyond belief what he's playing. And that's what you get from the Russian musicians and from the Russian literature of the late 1800s. You get fireworks, a spectacular grandeur out of it. 
But it's tough when you have to accomplish accompany that with a partnership like choreography. And this is the problem that, that Tchaikovsky had. And so finally, in, in 1895, the St. Petersburg production tried to do Swan Lake. And they took their own their own skill sets that, that had been developed for over 18 years. These, these men have been thinking about Tchaikovsky Swan Lake for 18 years. And finally, it clicked. It worked. It worked. And it was two years after Tchaikovsky had died that Swan Lake ever worked. Why was that? It's because the virtuosity of Tchaikovsky took 20 years for the right person to fulfill the choreography of that to come along. The, the right person has not come into place yet. And Tchaikovsky, just, he just died a little bit too early. And that's, that's the way our timing works. That's how the timing of greatness works, is that sometimes the timing isn't over a span of years and decades. Sometimes the timing is, is over decades and hundreds of years, years and even thousands of years. And I think if anything, that's what the Asian dynasties have taught us. That's what that's what the 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 arts of of the great European countries like like Italy and, and the, the Asian European country of, of Russia have taught us. I mean, that's that those are the lessons that we have to learn is that sometimes timing is not on our side, despite how how wise, how brilliant we are, and what our skill sets have, because it always takes a partner. It always takes someone else. Very true. I used to play Rachmaninoff and to play just one piece of Rachmaninoff, I had to practice five hours a day, that piece slowly. And I could only play it once fast that day. And that is on top of all the other pieces I was practicing. So that, yes, it is extremely complex, but it is remarkably beautiful. And I think that it also comes back to being a true leader and leading. So Tchaikovsky example, for example, sometimes you create something that maybe is too complex yet. For truly be shown in a way that you intend it, but it doesn't have to be shown in your lifetime. Even if after you die, people would enjoy it. That is what leadership is. You lead, you do things that other people are not doing with the right why. Looking out for how can I make this world better? How can I live it better off when I die? And that is so beautiful. Such a beautiful place as well to start wrapping up our session. Last question from me. That is my favorite question to ask. Over the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that really changed the way you look at life or the way you look at business? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. I, th I think probably the first thing that I have to reteach myself about every five years is that Working harder does not always lead to six, more success. That working longer does not always lead to more success. You mentioned in your opening intro that I wake up at 3.30 every morning. Yeah, I was, I, I, I was up at uh, 2.45 this morning. I was in the office by 4. Uh, I live 20 minutes away from my, my house. And so it was it was an early morning this morning. I think we're, you know, it's, it's 3 o'clock our time. So it's been, been an 11-hour day so far. But I've got to keep pounding in my mind that there's – very frequently, not very much of a correlation long term between working eight hours versus working 12 or 16 hours. And I'm someone that that classically worked, you know, 14 to 16 hours a day for the first 20 years. And I've got to wean myself off this idea that that I'm the savior of all the organizations, that I'm the savior. I'm the one that's going to protect it. If I don't do it, no one's going to do it. I have to realize that there are more important things, right? My family's more important than my business. My my community is more important than my business. My my you know being at my kids' games is more important than the business. My health is more important than the, than the business. But I've got to realize that it's not all it's not all on me. That it's got to be it's got to be something where we have to take a little bit of time. You've never seen a you've never seen a wise kind of philosophical type of person rushing through anything. You've never seen a a person of poise and of dignity rushing. It, that just doesn't happen. There's something about dignity that that the the aristocracy they never hurry through anything, and I think there's something to be something to be had for that, something to be said for that 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 the respect that we give ourselves is is something that that is should be dignified, not something that degrades us into hurrying around and and this sort of hustle culture or or work culture. Probably the second thing, Chris, is I I, I learned to think through 
my relationships based off the backgrounds a little more closely. Um, what I mean is, is, is a couple of things. So first of all, I found that whenever I'm working within my area of competency and I find myself having to interact with other people that are working outside of their areas of competency, that rarely works. So maybe this, maybe this is a, a board position where I'm working within my area of competency and work with a lot of people that are this there, maybe because they, they control large amounts of capital, but they're not really working their competency. That's just, that's a troubling place for me to be. I just don't function well in that in that sort of domain. Um, I mean, I'm okay with working, I think, outside of my competency, but I really have to just defer to other people. And you know, I'm I'm here to support you. I believe I believe what decisions you're making are right because it's your area of competency. But the that the inversion of that really works for me. Um, and the other way that, that this second point plays out is within the world religions. Um, we need to realize that different religions have different philosophical bets, that there, there are certain religions of the, of, of the South Asians, for instance, that, that have a duality about them, that, that you can go both left and right at the same time, that yes and no is possible on the same question, that it's not wrong to retrade a written contract. And I found myself dealing with this very, very recently. And it's 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 a it's a reoccurring theme because I found myself in relationships with people that that try to retrade terms that were already negotiated, and of course they never retrade it to my benefit. They always retrade it to their own own benefit, and it just it just got me a little bit jaded, just frankly, that that there are certain dualist backgrounds that I've got to really take take in and be more considerate of, and so I've I've had it I've just had to implement rules of my own dealings with with a lot of folks that come from this sort of background that this dualist background that I don't I don't retrade like we're going to negotiate this 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 transaction once I don't retrade and what what hurts is when you have long-term relationships that maybe the, the the nature of the duality has set in the background for a number of years and you're you're entrenched with people then all of a sudden over and over and over again over a one-year period they try to retrade existing contracts and partnerships and things like that not because the materiality of the facts have changed only because they want to be able to get a get a better deal and they get frustrated no they get i guess insulted when you don't want to retrade with them because it's part of the culture well the americans don't like to retrade we like to negotiate one time and that's it either you win the negotiation or lose the negotiation or it's a it's a win-win which i really don't believe in um i don't believe that's possible but we have to we have to we have to realize that there are certain people that don't have our thought system, certain people where yes and no are are applicable to the same questions. And so I think just understanding the context people come from and then making the proper decision is right. But but not everyone thinks like an, a like an American, like a Russian, like, a you know, we, we're not all thinking the same. And I think that's why we you know, we really need to be reading and learn about different cultures. It's very, very imperative. 100% agree with you. I lived and worked in multiple countries, and that is such a huge, huge asset because I can see different perspectives so easily. And you become this person of the world versus just an American or just Russian. It's so powerful. You can do it through reading, you can do it through traveling, you can do it through having friends from different cultures who are from different parts of the world. Rick, thank you so much. Such an incredible session. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Anything you want to share? Chris, thanks so much. Yeah, I, I have a YouTube channel, Rick Walker TX. Rick Walker TX is the handle on that. I'm also around on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, I'm not as as an active uh, podcaster as as Chris. I'm definitely not as successful as Chris. But I just want to get some ideas out there out there into the world. This idea of the of the convergence of all these different areas. You know, how do how do arts and literature and music and business and war strategy how do these all converge and how do they how do they change how we see the world as leaders? I I, I have a thesis about that, and that's what I like to explore on the various social media aspects. If you comment on any of the videos, comment on anything, I'll I'll be sure to engage as quickly as possible. I'll be I'll be monitoring the comments underneath this video on Chris's channel as well. So I, you know, look forward to engaging with your audience at some point. And uh, Chris, I really appreciate you you inviting me. I, I really enjoyed our conversation today. I thought I thought it was helpful for me, and I, I hopefully it was helpful for for at least for at least one of your uh, your viewers. I think it will be helpful for many people. I think we covered some very, very important areas that not enough discussed in business conversations. 
but they are fundamental to someone's success and someone's level of contribution. So for everyone listening or watching, our guest today again has been Rick Walker. You can find Rick on YouTube and LinkedIn and all these great places. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is a free one page that we created for you, temporarily available for you for free at firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. So it is firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care and I look forward to connect with you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.